Hello, this is Elodie, and welcome back to a new episode on a Life with Love podcast. By now, most people know the book Killer of the Flower Moon because of, or better yet, thanks to the movie. I recommend reading the book and then watching the movie, which is why I was so glad to read it for a book club last November, because I ended up watching it a week later, and I was happy to have all the information that I had from the book. This is an excellent true crime book, and I strongly think it should be included in every American history class. I am ashamed to say that as a history buff, I had very little knowledge about the history of Native Americans and I knew nothing about the Osage. So for me, reading this book felt like a slap in the face and a punch in the gut. Here is a short history I gathered about the Osage. The Osage Nation is a Midwestern American tribe of the Great Plains. They were known for being bold warriors, skilled hunters and farmers, and preservers of family life. In 1872, the U.S. government forced the Osage to move from Kansas to Oklahoma Indian Territory. This was one of the many times the Osage were removed from where they were, but this expulsion was worse in terms of lives lost and hardships. This move almost destroyed the Osage people. In fact, many young mothers and infants died. When the Osage moved to Oklahoma, they were able to buy 1.5 million acres of Oklahoma land outright from the federal government. Several years later, in 1897, as it turns out, oil was accidentally discovered on the Osage Indian Reservation. The U.S. Department of the Interior managed leases for oil exploration and production on land owned by the Osage Nation through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and later managed royalties paying individual allottees. These oil royalties were known as headrights, the head rights could be inherited by legal heirs, including non-Osage. If you were to compare to modern currency, the Osage nation was worth about $400 million annually, thanks to that oil. In 1923 alone, the Osage earned $30 million in royalties, the equivalent of roughly $540 million today. Oil transformed the daily lives of the Osage people and turned them into what was then considered the richest nation on earth. As more and more money was brought in, each Osage was entitled to more wealth, unfortunately drawing the interest than interference of non-Osage. Money management became a concern regarding the Osage people and their newfound wealth. It was reported in newspapers that they had chauffeured cars, mansions, fancy clothing, and that they sent their kids to go to school in Europe, which upset those who thought the Osage should spend their money more wisely. There were a lot of protests and outcries about the Osage nation's supposed inability to manage its money, and so in 1908, the U.S. Congress gave county probate courts in Oklahoma jurisdiction over land held by Native Americans who were deemed minors and incompetent by a judge. If a person was considered incompetent, the probate court could appoint a white guardian to oversee the financial affairs and lease or sell their land. In 1921, 
Congress went even further to specify that any person with Osage blood under 21 years of age, in addition to anyone who was half or full Osage, had to prove their competency or have a state court-appointed guardian assume management of their finances. Even the slight suspicion of irresponsibility was enough for the court to appoint a white guardian with the right to disperse an Osage person's money. They would even be charged steep administrative fees. Historian Tennis McAuliffe wrote that 600 guardians took $8 million in surplus funds alone with no oversight and no accountability over the course of just three years. During this period, numerous white men married Osage women to become guardians of their estate. David Cran explains in his book that head rights were not allowed to be bought or sold, so it's not like white people could simply use blackmail or extortion to steal money from the Osage. The head rights could only be inherited, which is why marriage was used for non-Osage men to gain access to Osage money. Therefore, some of the murders were committed in order for some whites to take over the head rights of Osage members when inheriting property after deaths. In 1921, the bodies of Anna Brown and her cousin Charles Whitehorn were discovered on the same day in different parts of the county. Two months later, Brown's mother Lizzie Kyle, who had inherited headrights, was killed by poisoning. Then Lizzie's nephew was killed in February 1923, and on March 10, Lizzie's daughter, her son-in-law, and a domestic worker died in a mysterious explosion at their home. Meanwhile, the massive wealth of the Kyle family was inherited by the only survivors, Molly Kyle, a full-blooded Osage woman who was Lizzie's last remaining daughter, and her white husband, Ernest Burkhardt. But the Kyle family weren't the only Osage people who died around this time, all under suspicious circumstances that included suspected poisonings, supposed suicides, and even being thrown off a train. Between 1921 and 1925, at least 60 Osage people were murdered or disappeared, all possessed wealth due to their head rights. And the Osage Tribal Council suspected that a prominent local white man was behind all of this. Newspapers described the increasing number of unsolved murders and deaths among the Osage as the reign of terror. The deaths sparked panic throughout Osage County but it also led to the involvement and structuring of the FBI, which was then called the Bureau of Investigation. And most importantly, it revealed the country's dark side. I am so thankful for the author David Gran for meticulously writing Killer of the Flower Moon and bringing the story to the public. You can't read this book and not feel appalled and furious by the diabolical nature of the story. This book exposes a heartbreaking tale of prejudice, betrayal, greed, and let's not forget, corruption. The pace is a bit slow, but I personally feel like I need a story like this to be slow so I can digest the horribleness of it. The Osage Indians were driven from their homeland in Kansas to a rocky, reportedly worthless reservation in northeast Oklahoma, where they were finally left alone to live until much to everyone's surprise, the U.S. largest oil deposit was discovered just under the land. The sad part of it all is that I think that the Osage would have been completely content just having a permanent place to live in with no one telling them to leave. But instead, Oklahoma turned out to be a poison gift. Due to human greed, 
the black gold was their downfall, and this story showed that indeed greed knows no limit. The story is told in a very emotion-free way from the FBI's point of view. It feels like a documentary, but in a book format. You'd think that it would be hard to feel emotions while reading this, but in fact, it's quite chilling and moving. I can't help but wonder what it would have been like if it had been more from the point of view of an Osage. I'd probably be crying from start to finish, kind of how I was while watching the movie. Some of the parts of the book that marked me were, first, the auction of the leases at the Million Dollar Elm, one of the highest single bid, sold for nearly $2 million, and the total of millions collected climbed to nearly $14 million. Keep in mind that this was in the 1920s. Just imagine what that's in 2023. Reading the names of the oil barons sickened me. If they were willing to pay $2 million for a lease, how much do you think they made in the end? If that's the way they created their fortune, I wouldn't want any of it. And the crazy part about this is that the Osage didn't even have access to that money because the U.S. government thought that something had to be done about these Osage Indians becoming so rich. They appointed them financial guardians, usually white men, and that's how outsiders had access to money, that and marriage. Second part of the book that marked me was the feeling of paranoia the reign of terror left the Osage. They were fearful of being out, fearful of others. They weren't even safe in their own home. I can't ever imagine living like this. At that time, any Osage was a target, and time was ticking on all of them. What I come away from reading this book is that justice was never really served for the gruesome murders of the Osage. So not only were the Osage treated in a horrific way, but there was no real punishment for it. In fact, up to now, we don't really have a clear idea of how many murders there were. So with that said, how can justice be truly given? I think the way we can honor the victims of the Osage murders and their families is by reading this book, talking about it, and watching the movie. We need to get more people talking and reacting to this. It's only taken a hundred years. Which is why I'm so glad Lily Gladstone, who grew up on a Montana Blackfeet reservation, won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. I hope she wins an Oscar as well. Sure, it would be a great honor for her. But again, it would get people talking about the Osage Nation. We can't change the past, but we can always do something about the future. And this is why I love history so much and why I think it's so important to read about it. You don't want to make the same mistakes again. Never again. This is the end of today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed and hopefully you'll share this with friends and family. Let us know what you think on our socials. Have a wonderful day. Take care and always remember, la vie est belle.